so I'm glad to be here today. Um, and we're going to talk about some practical considerations about exertional heat stroke. Um, I think often when we talk about it, we talk about the science behind it. We drill in why you should do rectal temperature. We talk about, you know, that you should do cold water immersion. But we don't talk about that there are lots of challenges and barriers to actually doing some of those things. So that's really what we're going to go through today. Um, and I hope we can agree that it's an important topic, but that there may be some challenges to doing so. Um, some disclosures, I'm from the University of Arkansas, um, and I am a board member for the KSI Medical and Science Advisory Board, and I was um, the director of research there for a number of years. So I'd like to hear from you a little bit. What are some of the barriers that you might face to implementing best practices for exertional heat stroke recognition and care? Hmm? Nothing? School boards, absolutely. Uh, in that they don't want you to do rectal temperature, right? Yeah. Um, anything else? Parents, maybe? Equipment, cost, for sure, right? You need to have that. Um, I've had experience in that when I was working as a high school athletic trainer, uh, my athletic director would line item edit out of my budget every year in my rectal thermometer, which was really annoying to me because that's something that I needed and wanted, and we definitely had the money for it. But before I ordered, he would say, actually, that thing, no, you don't get that. You get everything else, um, which was a problem. He did eventually get one, but it took a lot of convincing, so we'll talk about that a little bit. But there can be lots of barriers to actually implementing best practices, so we're going to talk about a bunch of those today. Um, this is our outline, and we're going to also bring it back to a case that I hope you've heard of because it's probably one of the most widely known cases of exertional heat stroke recently, which is Jordan McNair from the University of Maryland. Um, he died just recently in 2018. So Jordan McNair, just to give you some background, and we'll come back to what could have been done later, um, had an exertional heat stroke um, at a preseason conditioning session, essentially. In May of 2018, he died two weeks later in the hospital. He never returned home. He was only in the hospital. Um, he had a couple predisposing factors um, that we're not going to talk a lot about uh, predisposing factors about exertional heat stroke today, um, but he did have a few. Um, he presented as they had just done some sprints. He presented as having difficulty standing unsupported um, and walking around. He was having difficulty breathing. Um, he wasn't really responding to questioning very well um, and uh, just generally wasn't feeling well. That's all it was, which to me looks like pretty much every other athlete on the field, right? Except that he couldn't continue and all of the other linemen could continue, all right? So that's one of the things that happened in this case. Two athletic trainers, two assistant athletic trainers were supporting him walking. Um, the head athletic trainer asked that he be he continued walking around the field. Um, they did that for about 30 minutes with no improvement in symptoms. All right, 30 minutes of walking around the field, nothing got better. All right, hyperventilating, didn't get better. So eventually they took him to the athletic training room. Um, they started treatment with some cold towels and hydrating because he was still conscious. Um, at, and he was complaining of back pain. At some point, about 23 minutes after he um, was taken to the athletic training facility. He asked to get up and walk around because of his back pain. He went and sat down in another room and started seizing, had a seizure. Um, so at this point, we're you know, almost an hour 
after he originally showed signs and symptoms, right, after he originally presented, we're about an hour and he's just being treated and he's had a seizure. Um, it took another 30 minutes to get him out of the facility to the hospital. So that's 99, it was 99 minutes, um, as reported in an internal report, um, 99 minutes from the point of symptoms to leaving the athletic training facility. A temperature was never taken on site, so they never realized it was a heat stroke. Thus, he was never treated appropriately. Um, the first uh, temperature was taken at the hospital at 106 degrees Fahrenheit, which after 90 minutes, right, we would assume it had to be somewhere around 108 when he was on the field. He did, he was responding to questioning though, right? So he did, um, in the athletic training facility, right before his seizure, start becoming aggressive, yelling at athletic training staff, so he was starting to show really clear signs of CNS dysfunction, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, and then there were some particular things about Maryland. It was reported that they had a toxic culture, right? And what they meant by that was that there was a lot of fear and intimidation tactics happening with athletes, um, as well as punishment um, through food and exercise, which I thought was kind of interesting. So we're going to talk a little, we won't talk a lot about policies and procedures because it actually kind of goes along with what Brian was talking about. Um, a minute ago, uh, you should have a good emergency action plan that's specific and you should practice it. And you should have exertional heat stroke treatment, um, recognition, recognition and treatment procedures detailed and followed, right? Um, I'm not gonna uh, beat you over the head with it, but the 2015 NATA position statement's great. And some of the considerations that we talk about today, you should probably think about as you're making your plan if you don't have one already. In terms of assessment, the best practices for exertional heat stroke assessment um, are using signs and symptoms, particularly two key diagnostic criteria, CNS dysfunction and temperature. The only other way to find out about heat stroke is on symptoms alone, right? But there are lots of other things that can look like, look like exertional heat stroke. So this is one of my favorites. It's a modification that came from a paper from CASA in 2009. Um, where they described some of the most common differential diagnoses with exertional heat stroke. There's only one missing up here. Um, some of the most common ones. Down the side, there's some of the most common symptoms, right? And then how they stack up with your other differentials. So up at the top, if you notice, CNS dysfunction is a problem with all of these, right? So if you're going on CNS dysfunction alone, could be anything, could be shock, could be cardiac, could be heat stroke, we don't know. Right? The only specific differentiating factor up there has got to be temperature, right? And it's got to be an appropriate and accurate temperature at that. Um, so the other thing that I thought was interesting is that if you actually look at the breakdown, um, with, with heat exhaustion, there's a 72% symptom overlap with heat stroke, but you treat them differently, right? I'm not worried about super aggressive cooling with heat exhaustion. They're primarily going to need move to the shade, rest, maybe some cooling, hydration of the conscious, that kind of thing, right? It's not gonna be nearly as aggressive, whereas heat stroke, we're really pushing to get them cooled down because they're cooking from the inside, right? So in terms of temperature assessment, we can go back. Um, rectal temperature is gonna be the most appropriate, and this is where I lose everyone, right? Everyone's like, yeah, we should assess. Yes, you should. Yes, we should treat them um, with cold water immersion. 
yes, absolutely. And then you say, but your best temperature assessment's rectal temperature. And you all get a little bit squirmy in your seat, like, mm, I don't think I want to do that. But it really is the most accurate. Um, and we see it uh, quite a bit. The other options um, would be like esophageal temperature or intestinal temperature are also reasonable instead of rectal temperature. But I can tell you that there are lots of barriers to introducing that as well. So has anyone familiar with esophageal temperature? You're glad about that. You don't know it, but you are, because it's really not fun, right? It goes down your nose, through the epiglottis, into the esophagus, to the level of the heart, right? You need specialized training in order to do it. And in, in people that have um, a gag reflex, it can be really, really hard to actually get esophageal temperature, temperature in place. So although it does give you an accurate temperature, it is not a field expedient way to get a body temperature on your patient. And then intestinal temperature has some barriers as well. So intestinal temperature uses the pill. It's kind of like a large multivitamin. Um, they're relatively expensive at at least $40 a piece, depending on how many you buy. Um, and essentially it needs to be taken eight to 10 hours before activity because it needs to make its way out of your stomach and into your intestine, right? So it's basically a little telemetric pill, communicates with the receiver on the outside of the person, right? Not on the inside of the person, that would be pretty bad. Um, so ultimately that particular method has some challenges as well. You have to have a lot of pre-planning. So you need to know that your lineman is gonna have a heat stroke that day. But we don't know that. We would hope that doesn't happen generally. Um, so it's just not a reasonable conclusion. And then if we look at um, another study, uh, CASA as well as Ganyo did studies in uh, 2009 about temperature assessment in outdoor and indoor exercise. So this is just data from the outdoor exercise, but essentially it describes up at the top, the dark red is the rectal temperature. Intestinal is very close. It's just really hard and costly to implement if you need it in an emergency situation, right? And then um, down at the bottom are other most common types of temperature assessment. Temporal, which is, you know, the scanny thing. Oops, swipe, yep. Um, not particularly great. In fact, that one went down during exercise, and I don't know about you, but I generally get warmer when I'm running. Um, and that was outdoors in the heat. So I was in the sun. I believe they were playing ultimate frisbee for two hours, right? So there's no way they got colder. But essentially our alternative temperature assessment methods are not great. We don't want to use these. And when people ask, so what if I only have that though? What if I don't have a rectal thermometer? Should I use my temporal scanner? And my answer to that is generally no, because it doesn't give you a temperature that's reasonable. And we've done lots of research to try to figure out, you know, can we create a formula to say, well, we need to add 2.3 degrees, right, to your ear to your oral thermometer. Nope, it doesn't work out, right? We can't, we don't have a method of taking a temperature from those other methods and saying, and this is what it would be in rectal temperature. So we come back to your only option is rectal temperature, right? Your only feasible option, particularly in an emergency situation, is going to be rectal temperature. So let's talk about how to actually do it. Um, because there are some challenges in here as well. Not only do you have to have the equipment, but you need to actually implement the, the process. Has anyone ever taken a rectal temperature? Yes? It's not, it's not necessarily as challenging as you might think. 
right? And another thing, you don't need to completely strip down your patient, all right? Most people are concerned with exposure, right? They're concerned that their patient will be exposed to other people. It's a private area. We don't want that. But ultimately, I don't need you to take off like all of their clothing to take a rectal temperature. I just need a little bit exposed right on their backside. So we're going to move them to a private shaded area. If you don't have a private area, you know athletes are an excellent screen. Line them up, face them away from you. Privacy, all right? Um, you want to drape the patient with a sheet or a towel. You probably have something like that available to you. Um, position them uh, sideline with knee flex. I think about it like that sleeping position, right? Sideline, side top knee flexed up. Um, that gives only the person that has the, the probe for the thermometer access to that area, and all they need is to move their pants down just far enough to get to, um, to the anal sphincter and the rectum. That's all you need, right? Um, you want to put gloves on. Hmm? Definitely put gloves on. Um, and I find that it's easiest, especially now that you have gloves on, when um, your probe needs to go in 10 centimeters. But for me, even if I'm in an emergency situation, I don't know what 10 centimeters looks like. So the probe needs to be pre-measured. Just mark it with a Sharpie, right? 10 centimeters at least. Um, there is some research out of Central Michigan University by Kevin Miller that describes um, deeper is better, yeah? So uh, 12 centimeters is about as good as 10 centimeters. 15, a little bit better than 10 centimeters. Eight centimeters, not as good as 10, all right? So this is why we need at least 10 centimeters of the rectal probe to be in the, to be in the, patient, in the patient, excuse me. Um, you wanna clean the probe before you put it in your patient and you can provide lubricant if necessary, like KY or any other kind of lubricant like that is totally fine um, because it's safe for human use and internal use. Um, you wanna monitor the temperature after you put the probe in. If you're using, we'll talk about the differences in thermometer type in a second. Um, you wanna remove it when you're done. They don't really need to keep it forever, just during you know, monitoring and treatment. Um, and then clean it with a sterilization solution. We use Cydex or um, oh, Metricide is another one, or Sporacidin. Um, easy, common, the easiest way to search it is look for hospital grade sterilants, right? Because it's meant for patient use, right? So I hope we've talked about some of the, in that, I hope we've talked about some of the potential barriers, right? Um, typically when I'm doing this on a patient, um, I'm going to use, I'm going to grasp my probe at 10 centimeters to put into my patient because when my fingers meet skin, there we go, 10 centimeters in. I don't have to look, right? It doesn't have to be some super crazy exposing experience for your patient if you know what you're doing as a medical professional. Does anyone have any questions about that? All right. Um, some considerations for your thermometer. You want a long, flexible probe, um, particularly because uh, you want it to be long because you want to be able to keep it in during treatment. So if they're being immersed, if you have a short probe, you won't be able to keep the thermometer on the patient, right? You want to be able to keep it with them when they're in a bunch of water. Um, and you want it to be flexible, if at all possible, because you want to keep it in your patient. However, if all you have, oops, if all you have is like a well shallon rigid probe, that's totally fine. You can absolutely use that to monitor temperature, but it creates a couple challenges. So your challenge is gonna be that you can't keep it in, which means that every five minutes or so during treatment, you need to take your athlete out of the tub, use the rectal thermometer again, put him back in the tub, and every time you do that, you stop the cooling process. 
So it lengthens your cooling rate, right? It makes it much, much longer to actually cool them and treat them appropriately. So your, really, your best bet is a long, flexible probe. Um, also, there are single-use versus reusable. So if you don't want to worry about cleaning it, buy single-use ones. You likely will not be using this all the time, right? It's not like you're going to go through six of them a day. I hope, right? If you are, you should call me because I'm interested in wherever you are. I need to know. Um, but ultimately, you can get disposable ones. Um, that's really, they're very simple. Um, you want it to be battery operated because you probably will need to use it somewhere random out in a field somewhere. Um, and think about the cost. Um, this is a data therm, which is what I would normally use. Um, they're not super expensive, um, but it is a relatively costly piece of equipment generally. If you don't have, so determining when to use a rectal thermometer is nearly as important as having one to use, right? This is where people get really freaked out. This is where your athletic director and your school board gets really freaked out because they think that every time an athlete goes down, you're going to do a rectal temperature, which is absolutely not true because none of us want to do a rectal temperature. We just want to save our athlete's life, all right? So we can use kind of an algorithm like this one to determine when it's appropriate to take a temperature. And it essentially goes through some of the most common differentials until you get to the point of, well, we need to find out if it's heat illness, right? We need to find out if this is heat stroke or if this is hypoglycemia. One kind of important facet up here is indications of CNS dysfunction. So this, is, this was part of what happened in the Maryland case, where when he was on the field, he wasn't necessarily showing a lot of CNS dysfunction other than not wanting to communicate but they commonly, they, they associated that with being short of breath and laboring and that kind of thing. Um, but heat stroke very commonly comes with a lucid interval, which means your athlete will, may have CNS dysfunction and then all of a sudden be themselves for 10 minutes, right? They'll be answering questions, they'll be their nice normal demeanor and it won't necessarily be a problem. But after that interval ends, it's usually relatively short, right? We go back into CNS dysfunction. So even if when you see them, they're behaving and responding the way you would expect them to normally, um, you want to be considerate that that could still deteriorate. So don't, don't count it out at that point. You don't necessarily need to take a temperature at that point, but don't count it out. All right. When you get into, yes, they do have CNS dysfunction, um, and we think about the environmental factors. Have they been running? Is it likely that they have an elevated body temperature in some way? And do they have any predisposing factors? If you're answering yes to those, you need to take a temperature. The problem with not taking a temperature at that point is that you don't know what treatment to do. And while I would say that even if you don't have a temperature but you strongly suspect it's a heat stroke, you should do cold water immersion. That's the NATA recommendation at this point, is that even if you don't have a temperature, you should do cold water immersion. The problem with that is that if you don't identify the condition that's really going on, if it's not heat stroke, then you're only delaying care of that condition as well. All right? We don't want to delay care of heat stroke. We don't want to delay care of anything else going on. Hypoglycemia really looks like heat stroke. And if your athlete's been exercising, they may be warm. Right? Or we can have you know, coexisting conditions as well. So we want to be considerate of that. Um, this is why we don't advocate only symptoms. We advocate both symptoms and temperature. So on to treatment. Um, your best practice is cold water immersion. Um, because you want rapid, aggressive cooling, you really are intending to get their temperature down from 104 or 105, under 104, 105, within 30 minutes 
of their temperature being over that threshold. That's where I think people get a little confused. It's not 30 minutes from when they start showing symptoms, because their temperature could have been elevated for 15 minutes before that. You're looking for 30 minutes from the point at which their temperature was too hot, was too high. So they may have already had time with their temperature up before you even see them. So the less aggressive you're cooling, the longer it's going to take you to get them under that threshold. We, we use that threshold because that's where we have 100% survival if you have aggressive cooling and the temperature gets under that level within 30 minutes. 100% of survival, right? After that, we go up and it gets a little bit, a little bit hairy. We start to get some organ dysfunction, maybe other long-lasting consequences, um, as well as death after that time. All right, so that's what we're looking for. Um, and some other options, if you don't have a tub, or maybe you're traveling, you don't have the ability to take a tub with you, um, you could use the TACO method, which is tarp-assisted cooling. We'll talk about the steps for both cold water immersion and TACO in just a second. Um, but that's also one. There's been some information on ice water dousing. Ice water dousing is actually pretty challenging. You might think that it sounds easy, right? We're just rotating towels and dousing ice water, but it is constant movement by a team of six or more healthcare professionals, right? Uh, I've done this at Marine Corps Marathon because that's their preferred method. And although it does have reasonable cooling rates in relationship to cold water immersion, um, it's pretty challenging to do and it takes a lot of effort. Um, one thing that you might see that they're always at NATA and I always stop to see them is uh, life pod or polar life pod. All right. It's kind of like taco. It looks like taco. The problem is you can't agitate the water and you can't access your patient at all. You can only get to their head, right? Once they're in that thing, you can't take vitals. You have no way of monitoring them at all, except if you have a probe, a temperature probe long enough. Right? So it's really hard, although that seems like a reasonable method and it's certainly portable, um, it, it wouldn't be my first choice. So steps for cold water immersion, um, you want to remove extra layers or equipment. However, if you have a combative patient, right, or you suspect that they've had an elevated temperature for a long period of time before you get to treatment, dunk them anyways in full equipment. All right? Out of CMU, Kevin Miller described, he did a study on cold water immersion, um, with minimal clothing and in full equipment. And they found, although the, the cooling rate was a little bit lower, right, it was still actually pretty good even if they had full equipment on, right? So I'm going to recommend that even if you can't take the equipment off, dunk them anyways, right? And maybe they'll become more responsive to you and less combative in 10 minutes when their temperature is a little bit lower, and then you can remove equipment and continue cooling, all right? Um, we want to immerse them at least chest deep. There is for a long time some sort of fear that that was going to cause cardiac arrest. As far as I know, it's never happened in an otherwise healthy athlete, um, particularly when they're experiencing exertional heat stroke. Um, you want to place a towel under their arms to hold them up. We don't really want them to drown in the tub. So one person can hold them up from behind. It's the easiest way to do so. Um, you want to stir the water, monitor vitals, keep stirring the water because everyone forgets, they'll like hand in it once and say, that's good, right? No, you gotta keep going, right? That's to help prevent that pocket of warm water from accumulating around the patient, which will reduce or will increase your cooling time. All right, so you wanna keep stirring the water and then remove them when their temperature is at 102. And 102 is still elevated, right? That's still warm. Um, but what we tend to see, um, rectal temperature has a little bit of a lag, a couple of minutes before it can actually 
temperature comes down, so maybe everything else is a little bit cooler by the time rectal temperature is reading it. Um, so we don't want to cool them too much and have to rewarm, uh, but generally speaking, 102 seems to be a reasonable place to take them out. All right, so they're not going to get too cold um, that you're causing hypothermia, um, but it's low enough that they're likely not going to rise again. However, you should continue to monitor your patient's temperature as a vital sign, right, for it. I typically do, we typically do 30 minutes afterwards, um, unless they're in transport to the hospital in which they're going to monitor their temperature for that period of time. Um, we want to keep looking at it to make sure they're not getting too cold or they don't start to go back up, which can happen, all right? Um, some, there's a lot of the TACO method that's very similar. Um, with the TACO method, you're still going to remove equipment and stuff if you can, but rather than put them in a tub, you're going to put them on a tarp lying down, right? And then the medical team will bring the tarp up around the person, essentially creating sort of like a tub, right? You make them into a taco, a little cold water taco um, with, that, with that tarp. Um, you want to add as much ice and water as possible without drowning your patient. You still want as much of them submerged as possible. Um, uh, we usually do like three 10 gallons worth of ice and two 10 gallons worth of water. All right, and then instead of stirring the water, you don't have to reach in. The people holding the tarp, move the tarp up and down, shake it back and forth, because it's gonna agitate the water enough, all right? The thing about taco that although it's more portable, it requires more people to do it. So as you're practicing your EAP, understand that you're gonna need more people that are strong to be able to hold up the tarp, because it actually is kind of challenging, all right? With the tub, you probably need four. With the taco, you need six. Best is eight, all right? Eight people around the tarp. Um, and again, want to remove when their temperature gets to about 102. Um, a lot of people say, well, I have a cold shower in my, um, in my athletic training facility or the locker room. Like, can I just use that? And the answer is, the research says that it is almost no different than just sitting in an air-conditioned room like we are now, right? There's almost no difference in cold showering versus just sitting here like we are now. So that should not be your backup method, is kind of what I'm saying. Your backup method may be taco, right? Because you can just have a tarp. Um, but don't rely on, just because you have some access to cold water, that that's going to be the thing that will cool your patient, because it needs to be more aggressive than that. After treatment, you want to activate, so you want to activate EMS likely while they're being treated, but kind of like Brian said, they have different protocols than us, right? So you need to communicate with them. Our standard for athletic training is cool first, transport second, all right? Because in route to the hospital, there is no cooling. At the hospital, their methods of cooling are not nearly as good as ours, right? They don't have tubs with ice and water. They put on a cooling blanket and cross their fingers, right? Um, that's why people that are just transported to the hospital, even if they're transported at the onset of symptoms, typically still have organ damage and long-lasting issues with heat stroke. So we want to cool them on site as quickly as possible. Um, what we always say is if they show up and they want to take your patient, take the keys and run, because you're doing the best that you can for your patient by allowing them to be cooled until their temp is under 102. All right. Then after that, they should be transported. Um, uh, we also want to monitor vitals during that time. They should have follow-up care. And there are some guidelines, but not really. They're kind of fuzzy about returning to activity. Ultimately, it should be a gradual progression back into exercise. Um, 
And it should not only be gradual back into exercise, but also back into a temperate climate, right? So if they've had a heat stroke, we don't want to say, well, we'll go easy, but it's 95 degrees outside, right? Which, you know, that may be a little bit warm, even if it's normal for your climate, that's probably still too warm for your athlete. It's too close to normal body temp. So we want to both phase in exercise and then start phasing in warmness, a warm environment. Some other considerations that you probably need to think about that may not be on your radar yet are your patient specifically, being conscious and unconscious. An unconscious patient is challenging to deal with just like a conscious one. So an unconscious patient can't move themselves into the tub, all right? They can't be lifted. So if they're a large person, like Jordan McNair, 340-ish pounds, they're challenging to move. So you need to be considerate of how you're gonna move your unconscious patient for a number of circumstances, including heat stroke. And lifting them up into the tub, you need people, right? You need a lot of people. Even though you only need four for care, you may need more to get them in. Um, but a conscious patient can also be kind of challenging. CNS dysfunction manifests in many different ways. Um, I've seen it several times with lots of aggression, right? They'll try to run away from you. Um, they may be sobbing, have wild emotional swings, combative. Right? I know of people who've been bitten by heat stroke patients. Right? On a person who is otherwise not normally a human biter, right? they don't usually bite people, but they're experiencing CNS dysfunction and are unaware of their actions at the time. So that can be a challenge in and of itself. In a combative patient, it might be really difficult to get a rectal temperature, right? So if they're being really combative, you've tried, you've held them down, you still can't get their temperature, get them in the tub. Start cooling, because the only way to get them out of that state is uh, to get their temperature down, all right? And then you can get a temperature once they comply a little bit more. Um, that would be my recommendation for you to think about. Um, because CNS dysfunction looks like a bunch of different things. And the other thing to think about is it can also look like every other sweaty athlete. Your exertional heat stroke patient, before they exhibit CNS dysfunction, looks like everybody else. There's no like indicator light to say, yep, temp's too high, right? There's nothing that exists like that, that actually works. There are things that do exist, but they don't work. Um, and then prevention, understanding your medical history is really important. Um, that's part of understanding the scenario that surrounds the exertional heat stroke to determine, that helps you determine when is best for you to take a temperature, right? So understanding your predisposing factors about exertional heat stroke would be really helpful to say, yes, I think this is a heat stroke, it's time to take a temperature. Um, but don't let uh, only predisposing factors tell you that you should, right? Even if they don't have an illness, they haven't been taking medication, and they're generally in shape, doesn't mean they're not experiencing a heat stroke if everything else is there, right? So you can use it as a way to help you determine things in your toolbox, help you determine exertional heat stroke or not. So let's come back to the Maryland case because there's a lot of really interesting stuff that happened with this one. And I'll tell you, a lot of what I got was from an internal report that the University of Maryland did. All right, There's not a lot of great stuff out there about the medical care, generally, of Jordan McNair in this circumstance. The best thing I could find was their internal report. Um, and part of their report, not only did they examine the timeline of things and what actually happened, but they also made um, observations about the care and the things that happened on that day and what should be improved. So one of the things they found was that they had an EAP that met the recommendations. They just didn't follow it, 
right? So it's great. I love it when you have a great EAP, but it does nothing for you if you don't actually implement it appropriately. They didn't implement it appropriately. So in their case, they essentially, um, they didn't call it EMS when they said they would. Um, they didn't have anyone go and meet the ambulance. Um, so they had some delay in actually getting higher care to the patient. Um, and they didn't have, the other part of it was, uh, uh, they didn't really have a delineation of who was going to do what. So they didn't have that kind of, this person is the one responsible for calling EMS, this one's responsible for going to get the ambulance, for cooling, all that stuff. They didn't have that within their EAP, which is not part of the normal guideline, but is very helpful when you're in a situation where you have like six or eight medical staff available for one patient, right? Tell everyone what they need to do, delineate that in advance. Um, it will help the flow and communication much better. One of the things they brought up several times in the report was that the communication between not only the medical staff, but the medical staff and the strength conditioning staff was poor on that day at least, right? Um, they had moved practice fields and time, so the medical staff didn't have time to set up well, right, and plan appropriately. Um, and then strength and conditioning staff wasn't aware of how and when things needed to happen, and there was a lot of messiness in there. So part of that communication could be improved by having a delineation. Um, their, e their exertional heat illness treatment guidelines that they had written out were sufficient, but they didn't follow them. Right? So they had a delineation on how to determine if it's a heat stroke, but they didn't follow it. And they never determined it was a heat stroke, so they never treated him according to their guidelines. Right? But if you look back at what they had in place, Jordan McNair should have been here. Right? He should have been here because their treatment guidelines were good. Um, so thinking about that, not only do you need to have them and have them be appropriate and specific to your situation, but you also need to actually use them when the time comes. Um, one thing that they mentioned was that the daily, they did daily hydration screenings, or they were said they did daily hydration screenings, except on May 29th. Um, but the strength and conditioning staff was the, are the people that oversee that, which is a problem because they don't have training in how to actually do it. They don't have specific training on how to interpret it, and they don't have specific training on how to determine how to act, modify activity based on those guidelines. So if you're going to do something like a screening, the appropriate person needs to be able to do it, and they need to implement whatever kind of modification comes from said screening. Um, there's, they didn't do it on that day, so there's no information about whether or not uh, Jordan was hydrated. We don't know. Um, but ultimately, if you're going to have something, a guideline like that, you want it to be implemented by a medical professional. And then uh, the, they also found that the strength and conditioning staff failed to make appropriate considerations for exercise intensity, considering that they had just come off of a break. They were just on spring break. And of course, they sent home the little worksheet with like, yep, you need to do all of these exercises while you're gone every day. Like, what, 10% of athletes might do some of it, right? They're generally not doing the whole thing. They're probably not as fit as they were when they left you a week ago, all right? And so not only in the planning process did they not consider that Athletes may not be in great shape, but they also, when they saw athletes struggling, and it wasn't just Jordan struggling that day, there were several that were listed, right? They didn't make modifications, even though the athletes were having trouble, right? That's part of where I think the sports medicine staff and strength and conditioning staff can come together, 
right? Because we have knowledge on how to modify activity. Absolutely, I can help you figure out, right? Even in the moment, ahead of time, how we can modify things to keep things safe. Because ultimately, as an athletic trainer, that's my job, right? It's to help, help keep your athletes safe. So establish that kind of communication beforehand, like, hey, if I see that a lot of athletes are struggling today, I'm gonna come back to you, and we can figure out how to modify the rest of our training session for the day, all right? I'd love to take more questions or some practical considerations because there are some that are really common that I didn't touch on just to keep us within our time limit today, but um, does anyone have questions or concerns, things that they've, barriers or places of resistance that they've met? I've had a lot of experience. On average, how many regular do you take? So I'll preface this by saying I'm currently only a professor. <laughs> so right now I take not zero. But um, generally speaking, in a year, what I would say from experience on campus, on, at the U of A, we've taken maybe two a year. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Absolutely. So you gotta take into account the whole situation, right? You're looking for but you're looking for CNS dysfunction and you're looking for the other factors around it. So are you exercising, right? Do they have the possibility of being in a warm of being warm? Right? You don't have to be in a hot environment. All right, you can absolutely have a heat stroke in, in, the cold, in a cold environment. Um, but especially if you're in a warm environment, they're wearing equipment, they've been exercising, maybe they're not super fit, right? It can be, yes. But are you ruling out cardiac stuff, hypoglycemia? Are you ruling out some of the others very clearly? And if you have, and they're still having trouble, it's time for the temp, all right? 10 minutes or less, right? Because even, especially if you've gone through other assessment, you've assessed blood sugar, for example, right? If it was heat exhaustion only, in, in five minutes they'd be improving for you, right? Or even less. So if they're, not, if they're really not getting better within a really short period of time, it's time to take temperature because that's your only way of trying to figure out, okay, it's not heat stroke, let's move on to something else. My high school, so clinical education coordinator, so my high school athletic trainers are maybe doing one-ish a year. Okay. It's not too many. We haven't had, we haven't had heat strokes recently. We haven't had any recently, but, um, so not taking a, a ton every year.